Hans Christian Andersen uh, was tall. This is written by a biographer. He was ugly. He had a big nose. He had big feet. He was awkward. He was made fun of a ton as a kid. He struggled. He was artistic. And his peers made fun of him kind of ruthlessly. But to add to it is he was born out of wedlock. He was born what they would call in the 19th century an illegitimate child. And all of that weighed against him. And somewhere along the way, he discovered that it was hidden from him up until this point, that he was actually a child of the king. That was his illegitimate father. And all of these people were making fun of him, but the reality was his parentage was actually King Christian VIII of Denmark. And discovering that, he wrote a children's book called The Ugly Duckling. And in The Ugly Duckling, you hear a story of someone who didn't fit. This isn't my home. This isn't my place. People mocking him. People making fun of him. Saying he doesn't belong. And he had to agree. And then discovering that his parentage was very different than he imagined, he wrote this story where there's a beauty in the story. This story that begins in Ephesians 1, 1-10 is a story of God interrupting our stories and telling us of an eternal parentage. Telling us of an adoption that would radically change the way we see ourselves. A beauty beyond our imagination. Let's read together these first ten verses of Ephesians and see that we have cause to praise God because He has redeemed us. Ephesians 1, 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the, in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth let's begin with prayer as we begin our study in Ephesians heavenly father we are here to praise you. We are here to acknowledge that your plan is astounding and your love is amazing. And it, from the foundations of the world, was extended to us through Christ for all eternity. Father, thank you that you have written us into your story through adoption. 
that you have written us into your story of redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ and the redemption that's found there. Thank you for the hope that we have, the new identity that we have, and the voices you've given us to praise you. And today, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God, he has blessed us abundantly. How abundantly has he blessed us? What has he offered us? What has he done for us? Some of you might be looking from the perspective of your life and you're saying, well, if God were all-powerful and all-good, he would fix this problem that I'm in. Whatever the problem is, we all have them. And you might imagine that God's love would be extended for you more significantly if he solved it. We have families in duress in our church right now. And if God is good and all-powerful, why is that so? Why hasn't he already provided homes? Why hasn't he already provided financial solutions? Why has he allowed families to be broken apart through death or through illness? Why is God worthy of our praise? Well, the argument that's in Ephesians is that God works towards an eternity for us and an eternal relationship with him that the difficulties that we go through now only accentuate the blessing that is to come. He has an eternal perspective. From the foundations of the world, throughout eternity, he has an eternal perspective for us, his children. This book, this letter begins like so many of Paul's letters. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. So that sounds familiar for those of us who have studied the Word of God, and, but there are some differences that I want you to note as we begin in this letter to the Ephesians. Timothy isn't mentioned, and no particular problem is addressed by Ephesians. Why is that a, a question? Because the facts are that Ephesians was sent with the letter to the Colossians by Tychicus, and we can compare the two books, and Colossians was written with Timothy while Ephesians doesn't mention Timothy. Why? Timothy would end up being the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Why is that an issue? Why is there not a particular problem? Why is Paul vague when he writes to the Ephesians and very theological instead of down to the, like, what are his concerns about Ephesus? In fact, if you were to read 1 Timothy, you would see as he's writing to then Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, Paul's very particular about his concerns in Ephesus. To add to the issue, there are four of our earliest manuscripts that leave off in Ephesus. So much so that theologians scratch their head and say, well, Maybe this letter was never written to Ephesus. Maybe that changed. Well, by the second century, they're already declaring and quoting from this letter to the Ephesians. So how are we to think about this letter as we begin it? I would encourage you to consider this as Paul's letter to the churches. That's why we have on the screen this picture of what an old church might look like with stained glass. Thanks, Andy, for doing that for us. We are connected with the church throughout the generations, and Ephesus 
The, the letter to the Ephesians is written to the churches. And the argument would be that Paul left Tychicus with more than one letter to the Ephesians, and he was supposed to bring it to churches, although its first stop was Ephesus. So this is a big scope story where he's looking at what's going on in the churches. And he's not writing to a particular church with a particular problem. He's writing to the churches, how are we to think about ourselves? Something else you need to know about Ephesians, and this is similar to some of Paul's letters and from other books in the Bible as well. The first three chapters do not have a command in it. It doesn't have an imperative. It doesn't have a, you should be doing this comment in all of the first three chapters. The three chapters that follow the first three chapters is packed full of, this is how you live. And how are we to think about that? Well, the first thing to understand is your identity. The first thing to understand is who Christ is to you and what God has done for you and intended to do for you so that you live with the correct knowledge and a faith about who you are. Without this, it is disturbing, as disturbing as it was for Hans Christian Andersen to be taking his directives from the people around him about who he was. Hans Christian Andersen was listening to the voices, are you? Today, I want you to start listening to the voice of God about who you are. Doesn't matter what your dad said to you. Doesn't matter what your mom said to you. Doesn't matter what your neighbors say to you. What does God say to you? And we find in these first 10 verses a God who lavishes love, just like was already said. Remarkably, this is also written to the saints. You see it? The saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul likes to use this phrase to describe Christians. It would soon be adopted by the church to mean super-Christians. That's not what Paul uses it as. Paul talks about us all being set apart and holy ones. It's taken from the Old Testament to describe people who are called according to God's purposes with His plan and with His character. We are all who believe in Jesus Christ, the saints. And are we, we are considered faithful in Christ Jesus. He then goes on in verse 2 to say, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the common phrase for Paul to address and to bless the people that are reading his letters. Grace to you. It's almost like a prayer. Grace to you and peace. Now this is different than what, how Jews would have normally greeted each other. They would have normally greeted each other with shalom. That was hello, that was peace. But he has added this characteristics as if these two characteristics are what define this new relationship with God, this new covenant relationship with God. We are children of grace and children of peace. Grace with God, from God. Grace that means salvation. Grace that we're about to see how he has lavished this grace on us. And then peace with God and each other. And in the church, we're going to see as Ephesians unfolds, this drastically changes how we treat each other. This drastically changes how we act in the world, but not yet. 
right now, I want you to know who you are. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you are a new covenant child of God, you are a child of grace and you are a child of peace. That's your identity. Grace and peace. From where? From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see in these first three verses, Jesus Christ is mentioned again and again and again. He is the heart of our faith and the heart of our story. In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This blessed be is praise. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In fact, in Paul's time, the Jews would pray three times a day, and they would use 18 benedictions that would begin with, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Bless Yahweh. And as they would say, bless Yahweh, they would then talk about why. But as we begin with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this was different than what Paul had prayed before he became a Christian. It is Jesus Christ who has radically changed his blessing. We praise God because he has blessed us abundantly. That's who we are. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but in it he describes, he's trying to talk philosophically, he's not trying to talk what heaven is really like, he describes someone coming up into heaven by a bus from hell and getting to experience it. And I had this picture in my mind as this series begins, that what would it be like for us to take a moment and invite someone into this new relationship we have with Christ, this changed relationship with Christ, let me tell you what it's like now. Let me tell you what we enjoy. Let me tell you who you are. Almost like an adopted child who comes into the new family, royal family. That's yours. That's where you belong right in the throne room with your heavenly Father because of Jesus Christ. You can go boldly into His presence. That's who you are. Paul is introducing these churches to a God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What's the point of spiritual blessing in heavenly places? Well, you're going to see spiritual battles and a spiritual realm that is addressed in Ephesus more than we're used to reading in the New Testament. We're going to get a chance to look at what is the negative spiritual realm that is at work against us, the power in this world, and we're going to see God who is at work in us that trumps all of the negative spiritual forces. But right now, he wants you to know that God's intent for you, God's plan for you, God's purpose with you his child his adopted child is to bless you in every spirit with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so let's take a step back again and consider those difficulties you're going through i see them i weep over them i've watched people suffer oh how i wish i could fix it oh how i wish it would end i pray for its end 
And yet God is saying, over and above the struggle that you're going through, my heart is to bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. And he's about to tell us what he means by that. That's God's heart. Sometimes we might be threatened to doubt that heart when times are hard. Maybe we'd say to God, if I were you, dot, dot, dot. Well, the reality is if we were him, we wouldn't have died on a cross because we're not that good. God has blessed us and intends to bless us. Why has he not given us that thing we want? Let's consider for a moment who we are and whose we are. Jesus Christ is mentioned again and again in these three, first three verses, and we can praise God because he has blessed us abundantly. We praise God because he has chosen and predestined us. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So let's just pause there for a minute. He chose us before the foundations of the world. So let's take a moment thinking about that experience that God had with the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We know because of Colossians 1.16 that Jesus was there. John 1.3, Jesus was there at creation. In fact, all creation was being done through him and for him. And as he, as he was creating, there was a decision being made before the foundations of the world that he would adopt us. What in the world does that mean? That means he knew we would fall. That means he knew sin would enter into the world. That means he knew that we would bite the hand that was feeding us, Isaiah 1. That he knew we would turn on him. And he not only decided to create something very good, he, create, he decided to recreate what we ruined and adopt us. Hans Christian Andersen might have been what the 19th century called an illegitimate child. But the reality is all of us are illegitimately born into sin through Adam. And every one of us desperately needed God to speak and act. Every one of us. Every one of us needed God to be a God who loved even when we didn't, who chose us before the foundation of the world. And as we get particular about this, your name was his concern. You, you as a person, he loved, for God so loved Todd Berge that before the foundation of the world, he chose to go to the cross and die for me and adopt me as his son. Who are you? Child of God? You are loved eternally. You are chosen. I don't know how many people here have been adopted. There are some in our congregation that I know have been adopted. You know the difference between an adopted child and one who's been natural born into your family? The cool part about being adopted is you were picked. You were chosen. 
Yeah, Manny, I'm talking to you. <laughs> you were picked. God picked you. God chose you. God didn't want you to die. God wanted you to live. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, we have to pause here at the in him. And I'm going to tell you that in Christ is spoken of throughout Ephesians. And what it means to be in Christ, we're going to be developing throughout Ephesians. But this concept of being in Christ, this mystery of what it means for us to be in Christ, radically changes our identity. Radically changes who we are and why we're here. How were we chosen? We were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That's His purpose, is to restore our holiness, to restore our blamelessness. How can that possibly be? Paul, who's writing this, wrote of himself, I consider myself the worst of all sinners. And now he's writing that he was chosen to be holy and blameless. This is the work that God did. And for three chapters, we are going to be looking at the work that God did to define who we are. And what do we say to this? Praise God. Praise God that he acted. At the very end of verse 4 and beginning in verse 5, don't miss this, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In love. Now this issue of predestination and adoption, clearly a tenant of the Word of God. Clearly it's spoken of in the Word of God as God choosing us from the foundation of the world. Do I understand it? I do not. I don't understand how some passages can talk about human responsibility. I don't understand how we're to view this. But the first thing I want you to see from this passage is we're discussing what is clearly true, that God predestines, God chooses, God adopts, and God loves, is that it's about God's love. It has been described to me at times as almost a detached decision of who's in, who's out. I don't buy that. I think God loves all. And I think it was, it was His will that all would come to the Father. But although I know this is true and although I know this is who my God is, at the same time, I understand clearly that He adopts, He chooses, He predestines us before the beginning of time. Now, to add to it, God is outside of time, so I don't even know what that means before the beginning of time. How are we to think about it today? Well, I'll tell you that this adoption, predestination that's here in these first 10 verses, I think what he's trying to tell us is that you're safe, you're loved, you're chosen. He's not talking right now about who isn't chosen. He's talking about those who have, by faith, chosen to trust in Jesus Christ and find themselves chosen before the beginning of time. And I want you to know that you are secure. You are safe because God is the one who chose you and He's the one who will bring you home.
He chose us in Christ. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, in Christ does not just mean through the work of Jesus Christ, but here in verse 5, in the middle of it, he's talking about this being accomplished through what Christ did. There's a predestination and adoption, but at the moment when he does that, before the beginning of time, he has decided to enter into time to take on our sin and go to the cross and die for us. This is all about love. This is all about a desire to come for us. And how far would he go? Now compare knowing who you are in Christ with what people have said about you. We all have them ringing around in our brains, don't we? Who does God say you are? You're my beloved son. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. This is all God-sized stuff. God is accomplishing this work in us where he's redeeming, he's restoring, he's choosing, he's predestining. And all of it is to the praise of his glorious grace. You know, there are old churches you can go through, and I, I, I didn't know how to think about the stained glass that was on the walls of those churches that told the story, the gospel story, until one time in a church history class I understood people were illiterate. They couldn't read the Word of God. They had the Word of God up on those pictures that were in the stained glass, and as they came into church, the gospel was being preached to them by what was on that stained glass. And I had a completely different perspective of that stained glass. What would be on the stained glass this morning? God coming for you? How far? A God restoring you? To what end? Through Christ. We are to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Who's the beloved there? That's Jesus. Jesus is the beloved. Again, in the beloved. Which means that when we gather together on the church and as we read through Ephesians, there's going to be a lot of we talk and us talk and plural. It's the gathering of the people of God, those who have been chosen, those who are part of this family of God that we are praise to him. Living out our lives in response to the gospel is praise. It's not just what we do for three songs before the sermon and one song after the sermon. That's not the praise necessarily that we're talking about here. It's only part of the praise. This praise is talking about who we are and how we live. We are defined by this adoption. This radically changes, just like the ugly duckling. I am no longer what you said I was. I'm a swan. I am no longer what I said of myself and others said of me. I am an adopted child of God in Christ. That's who you are. 
Praise God, he has blessed us abundantly. Praise God, he has chosen and predestined us. As we go into the third point, praise God, he has forgiven us and secured our future. I confess, I struggled with this mightily. I wanted to break this down verse by verse. I've got 10 verses to cover that have universal implications for you and me. But the only thing that I can feel better about is the fact that we're going to be revisiting these 10 verses throughout Ephesians. And you need to be revisiting for the rest of your life while you're on earth what Christ has done for you and who you are in Christ. It changes the story. It's a rewrite on every story that we've gone through. Praise God, he has forgiven us and secured our future in him. We're going to see that a lot in Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption through his blood. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus speaking of what his ministry was. And unfortunately, I didn't copy it. I'm going to flip over there so you can read it. That's the first time I've done that in years. Give me a minute. (laughs) What? (laughs) Thank you. Matthew 20. I am forgiven. Isn't that cool? I'm a child of God. I'm not defined by my mistakes. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who served us. Jesus is the one who came for us. Jesus is the one who resolved to not come and say, I'm here for you all to worship me and praise me. That's coming and that's true. We, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But he came the first time to serve us. That's God's heart of redemption. There's also a shift in these last four verses, 7 through 10, from past tense to present tense. We have redemption through His blood. This is what we have presently, what He has done for us. The picture here of this kind of redemption is a release from slavery. And this release from slavery is going to continue throughout Ephesians as one of the benefits that we have in Christ. And it harkens back to that release from slavery in Egypt. And in that first century, people would have understood slavery, that you are no longer a slave, but you're a son. You're no longer defined by this distinction of oppression over you, but Jesus came and served you by dying on the cross and now builds you up and gives you the position of joint heirs with Christ. Brother of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. This picture of every spiritual blessing is centered on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this slavery that we're being freed from isn't just temporal slavery to people like people imagine in the first century. This is slavery to sin. This is slavery to forces that we can't control. Spiritual forces. It's a slavery to prejudice. 
slavery to brokenness. And in one moment on the cross, Jesus does away with our slavery. And we are no longer defined as slaves to sin, slaves to hatred, or slaves to evil, but we are redeemed and restored, and we are children of God, and we are part of His family, and we are holy and blameless eternally, and we are supposed to be becoming holy and blameless while we're waiting for His return. This is who we are. This is why we're here. In verses 7 and 8, he speaks of God's heart for doing this. And before I read verses 7 and 8, I want you to, uh, I want you to know something about God. God has limited resources. So he passes them out little by little. Can I hear? Oh, I have one person said heresy. You all should have said heresy. God has a, I've got to find a new church. <laughs> and people will be seeing you in the back for other churches you can go to. God has a heart that's kind of miserly. He's kind of ticked at you and really wants you to pay for your sin a little bit before he blesses you. Preach. Say it nice and loud. Tell me about your God. You like the word lavish? It's a good word, isn't it? Do you know that God has lavished his blessing on you in Christ? We need to see the world the way God sees it with us and what he's trying to accomplish with us. He is more concerned about our character than our comfort. We think if God's going to lavish on us, that means rest and a lazy boy chair and a new car and a, a vacation. That's not the lavish we're talking about here. We're talking about a relationship with the living God and with each other. And he has given us everything that we need to thrive. I'm glad to know that you're willing to call me a heretic if I stray from the passage. <laughs> In verse 8, speaking of this riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. God's heart, God's plan is to shower us with what our heart has always longed for. An identity in Christ and a family that's eternal. A family that's marked by love and grace and peace. This is what God's doing. 
In verse 10 it says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This plan is going to spill forth into a future moment where Jesus will reign and bring peace to this world and everything will be restored and nations will no longer fight. They will come and give praise to God. And they will thrive. Brokenness, division, pain and suffering will end. This is the lavished work of God through Jesus Christ. God is worthy of all our praise. He redeemed us. We humans, from our perspective, can we mess up just about everything? This is one of them also. As I talk about God's worthy of all of our praise, we imagine a God like us. God's up there and He just wants us to tell Him how great He is. And that is heresy also. God is up there, chose to come down here, to express his love to us in the most remarkable and humiliating of ways to redefine who we are. And we praise because it's the right thing to do. We are in this relationship with the Father now where we're unhindered and we can he's lavishing and we're praising and it works. It's what God wants from us to be the people that thrive. The first three chapters as we're going through Ephesians, my argument for you is to live like the adopted child that you are. Receive the words of God about what He's done for you and who He is. Today, I'm asking you to praise Him. Be to the praise of His glory today. Hans Christian Andersen is not a perfect example of what Christ has done. It falls desperately short. It was trying to give you a picture of discovery that I am not who they said I was. I would argue that God spends three chapters in Ephesians trying to convince us of who we are as a church and as Christians because we are not very quick to believe it. We're much more inclined to hear the voices in our head and the voices of people in our past and think maybe they're right. Or maybe you're saying, well, I am a sinner and I have failed and I can list off these things that define me. I'm telling you that what God has done through Jesus Christ has overcome all of the things that defined you in the past. Praise God, who has lavished on us these blessings of grace through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't imagine your goodness. We can't imagine pure love and grace like you attended. It's beyond our scope in this world, but for those of us here who have chosen to trust you, 
we find that we have been chosen from the beginning of time. And I just want to say thank you. I want to praise you that you aren't like us, but that you're good and kind and gentle. And your love extends beyond our slavery and brings us home. In Jesus' name, amen.